0: Reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 5, beginning at the 21st verse. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You have heard that it was said of those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on grounds of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your words be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. This is the gospel of the Lord.
1: Lord May the words that come from my mouth make sense because they're inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, Stephen, for that cheery gospel passage, specifically timed to coincide with Valentine's Day. Actually, interestingly enough, every three years that reading pops up around Valentine's Day. Three years ago it was two days before Valentine's Day um, and three years before that, six years ago, it was exactly the same as as it is this year, two days after Valentine's Day. I wonder whether those who put together our list of readings for the year have um, a sneaky um, way of getting the message through to us. But I'm not going to speak about Valentine's Day today. Um, Have you ever wondered what sort of thing that an archbishop talks about over dinner? I'm sure it keeps you awake at night wondering. On Wednesday night, I sat opposite our archbishop, and among many other things that we talked about, mostly church-related, surprisingly, uh, the topic of what clergy people like me call themselves came up particularly about using the term either priest or minister partway through the conversation the archbishop said some clergy in this diocese call themselves senior minister i say to them call yourself what's on your license Now, not one to shy away from controversy, I responded, Archbishop, I call myself senior minister. I still call myself priest and rector, which is on my license. But when I arrived on the Gold Coast, I looked at all the websites on the local churches and to find the most common titles for church leaders, and senior minister was by far the most common. So I decided to use that publicly. Nobody outside of the Anglican Church knows what a rector is. Many inside the Anglican Church don't know that either. I didn't mention that to the Archbishop. (laughs) And I then went on to say, I think that the Church has lost both the right and the influence to tell those outside the Church what words they should or shouldn't be using. It's the same reason that we use the term Anglican Church Rabina as our public name. We are still Trinity Anglican Mission, but nobody outside of our church community knows what a tam is. The archbishop quickly then changed the topic. So if I'm not here next week, you might know what happened. <laughs> At least he didn't, go, didn't tell me to go back and read my license. And my business card uh, still says senior minister. But being aware of what those outside of the church are doing, what they themselves are aware of, what they think of us, and how we are perceived is just as important as who we actually are and what we actually do. The Archbishop is probably more aware than most of us of the impact of perceptions on the church in a post-Royal Commission into Institutional Child Abuse world. As we continue to explore our theme, truth for our time, truth for all time, it's important for us to consider perception and its relationship with the truth. It's long been said that perception is as powerful as truth. But in a world of fake news, clickbait, and instant access to information, now more than ever do we have to be aware and wary of perception. I'm not sure if you saw the news uh, this week, but a South Australian dentist has been given permission to serve orders to Google uh, to release information that it has on an anonymous reviewer who left a negative review about the dentist. Of course, there'd be no um, negative reviews about our resident dentist um, in our congregation. Derek's brilliant. He just takes out his frustrations on my long sermons every time I visit him. (laughs) But um, nothing negative about that. But it's interesting that the journalists reporting on this story um, were rejoicing at the possibility that Google and social media platforms may finally be held to the standards of other journalists. Well, at least the standards they're supposed to be held to. We'll see. But in the meantime, we live in a world where something can be held up as truth with very little information and very little substantiation. Truth has lost value. And those who hold anything up as truth are often treated with skepticism. How we respond to this skepticism does matter. We can stick our heads in the sand and keep on keeping on, but that won't stop the negative perceptions if this is our only strategy. The strategy of the religious people in Jesus' time was to follow God's law. And if you did that, everything would be okay. But following God's law, when their actions and their intentions were actually turned away from God, impacted others particularly the vulnerable, leading to serious dysfunction in their world. At that time, they needed Jesus. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, and throughout his other teaching, that this strategy of just following the letter of the law is not enough. Our world loves a good strategy. If you uh, Google, uh, you do a search on LinkedIn for the amount of people who are specialists in strategic planning, you'll get a list, uh, pages and pages long. But uh, the famous management consultant and writer Peter Drucker famously said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And Jesus doesn't offer strategy. He's about changing culture. And what we read today and throughout the Sermon on the Mount is the cultural impact of the kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing to life. Um, Graham Leo in his Lenten Reflections will be picking up on this theme of culture. So watch your inbox in a couple of weeks' time. It'll be popping up um, and you can reread this passage again. The crowd who gathered to hear this sermon included many of those who would not have had extra food in their cupboards at home. They wouldn't have wardrobes filled with different outfits to choose from. These were the displaced of the Roman Empire. They were not wealthy or powerful. They were sick. They were underemployed. They were repeatedly left out, living hand to mouth. There were likely some of the religious elite in the crowd or representatives of them so that they could report back to what Jesus was saying. But they were in the minority by far. It's interesting that Jesus' cultural change does not begin with the influential. It began with those who they thought had the least influence. Jesus had earned a reputation. And that reputation wasn't first and foremost for what he said, he had earned a reputation for what he did. It says uh, a few uh, passages earlier than what we read today, and I might have paraphrased this for for modern effect at the start. News about him had gone viral all over Syria. That's me. The rest of it's from the Bible. And they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. Before he spoke, Jesus acted. In the restoring of the dignity of the least of these, Jesus is questioning the position of others. For those who have food, those who have clothes, Jesus' words destabilize what they think is security. Those self-appointed saints actually looked no different Than the powers that be in Rome. This kingdom of God culture is a consequence of God's grace. It's not a commodity, but you traded. And we need to be careful that we ourselves don't promise that we can bring to life this kingdom that Jesus proclaimed. We can't. We can only bear witness to it and be part of the kingdom-building culture. But we Christians have a problem. We'd rather be right than righteous. Jesus subverts our ideas of what it means to be safe and secure by calling us to what seems a peculiar way of living. A way that is utterly dependent on God. And this is the culture of the kingdom of God that we depend not on ourselves, not on our own strength, not on our own abilities, but on God. Jesus' listeners are are able to hear and absorb All these absurd expectations, not because Jesus is a brilliant orator, which I'm sure he was, but because they had already experienced Jesus. It's not a campaign speech full of empty promises. What Jesus is sharing with them is a summary of how we can live Because we have experienced divine power, we can live in a way that is radically different to the world around us. Jesus is teaching that keeping the letter of the the law will not fulfill the justice of God. Only by being different than the culture that's around us will the world notice God in us. Only by being a living example of righteousness, mercy, and humility will the world glimpse the kingdom of God. Only by us responding to the love and grace of God will those around us see the kingdom of God that is forming through this spirit filled community inspired by the life, the death, the resurrection and the promised return of Jesus. It's not enough to be a follower of Jesus in the same way that you would follow somebody on Instagram. Jesus calls for his disciples to honor their commitments, first at home, as a practice for living lives of integrity in public. The Sermon on the Mount requires more than individual intent It requires community interdependence. Beginning in marriage, the practice of fidelity, trustworthiness and commitment. Then we're called to treat those around us with the same honesty, respect and authenticity. If you've forgotten where you've heard this first, then we just need to reread Matthew's gospel. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Fortunately for those who are listening to Jesus, and fortunately for us, the scribes and the Pharisees had set a pretty low bar. And the cultural change of the early church spread incredibly quickly. It was noticed the way that these people lived was different. I was uh, listening um, to um, the scholar N.T. Wright on his podcast the other day um, who was talking about how the Christian church gained momentum uh, because of women in sharing the gospel. You see, In Roman culture, if you had a female child, you often left them on the rubbish tip to die. Particularly if you already had one. But what the Christian community did was they went to the rubbish tips and rescued the children. And they embraced the girls that were born into their families. And so what there was left was there was an overabundance of Christian women who had to marry men and some of those were christian but some of them weren't but they possibly became christians or at least allowed their wives to practice their faith and the children grew up as christians the different way of living was radical might not seem radical to us in 2020 but in those days it was and so cultural change happened very quickly and spread all over the roman empire And it's become foundational now to what we call Western civilized culture. But my assessment, and I know it's the assessment of many others, is that we've drifted back into that Pharisaic and comfortable culture. We need cultural change again. We need cultural change still. I mentioned at the beginning of my message That being aware of those outside the church, what they are doing, what they are aware of, what they think of us and how we are perceived is just as important as who we are and what we do. But the only way that I know to impact perception in a positive way is by who we are and what we actually do. Fortunately, these are the foundations of the cultural change in the kingdom of God. We are the children of God and we are liberated by grace and the demonstration of how we love God is how we treat one another. The cultural change that Jesus speaks of is often um, viewed as replacing the old. It's not like that at all. In fact, what it's doing is intensifying. It's becoming more radical and more focused and more intentional than what it was. It's becoming clearer for us so that we can't get it confused. Jesus says it's not enough just to refrain from murdering someone. We should also treat each other with respect. And that means not speaking hateful words. It's not enough to avoid physically committing adultery. We should also not objectify others by seeing them as a means to satisfy our own physical desires. Jesus says it's not enough to follow the letter of the law and he uses divorce as an example. We should not treat people like they're disposable. We should make sure the most vulnerable are provided for. If I had another 15 minutes, um, I'd give you all the background of, um, of what um, the, the divorce laws and the, the culture at the time was. But you have to go back to my sermon six years ago when I, um, I talked about that. And Jesus finishes by saying it's not enough to keep ourselves from swearing falsely or lying. We should speak and act truthfully in all our dealings so that we don't need to make these types of oaths at all. These were four of the top hot issues of Jesus' time. World's changed so much, these issues have got nothing to do with the way we live now, do they? Well, they seem to me to have as much relevance now, perhaps even more, to take Jesus' words into our lives now could be seen as being way more radical in 2020 than it was in Jesus' days. But can, can you imagine a world where people actively are concerned about the well-being of their neighbour? I, I, rarely say hi to my neighbors. Our neighbors on one side have moved away. I don't have other neighbors. We don't talk and know our neighbors anymore. So again, culturally, we've changed. But can you imagine a world where those inside the church are actively seeking the well-being of those who aren't in the church as well as those who are in the church? This is the culture that Jesus is embedding in the kingdom of God in the lives of his followers and this is to be our culture and as I finish I can't help but ask is the future of this church actively concerned about the well-being of our neighbour those who aren't here on Sundays those who aren't like us Is this a hard truth for our time? I pray that the Holy Spirit is so overwhelming in this place that we can't help but to treat and to see our neighbors as if they are the bearers of the image of God. I pray that we might realize that we are called to be in the likeness of God, and as radical and as hard and as countercultural as that might be, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to direct us and lead us. Lord, I thank you for your word today, as hard as it might seem. Help us to be the bearers of your truth and your light, regardless of what the perceptions might have been in the past. Amen. I invite you to stand as we commit ourselves to seeking first.